that even if he had the language to express what he had seen, there would be no redemption for him. Haunted by his past, he cycled to the mine in all weathers, and apart from his many injuries and broken bones from rock falls, was never ill, never got so much as a cold. But his almost thirty years as a faceworker below ground, the countless shifts and overtime operating a compressed air hammer on the coal face, without any kind of ear protection as was customary at the time, meant that he'd lost his hearing, and could hardly understand anything or anyone apart from my mother. Even today, it's a mystery to me whether it was the particular frequency of her voice or the way she moved her lips that enabled him to converse with her quite normally. Everyone else had to shout and gesticulate if they wanted to say anything to him, because he didn't have a hearing aid. He didn't like wearing one, as they supposedly produced interference and painful feedback. It made communication with him very taxing, and made him even more isolated, even within the family. But I, for one, always had the impression that he wasn't unhappy in this unquestioning silence, which condensed around him more and more from one year to the next. Worn down by work in the end, prematurely retired, and having quickly become an alcoholic, out of shame, I think, he asked little more from life than his newspaper and the latest crime novel from the kiosk, and in 1987, just after he had turned sixty, when the doctors informed him of his imminent death, he barely showed any concern. No knife is coming anywhere near my body, he'd said, even at the start of the illness, and neither his smoking nor drinking diminished in the least. He ordered his favourite meal, fried potatoes with scrambled eggs and spinach, a little less often than usual, that was all, and he took to hiding his vodka from my mother in the cellar, under the coal. When he retired, I gave him a fine notebook, with a request that he use it to sketch out his life for me, record any notable episodes from the time before I was born, but it remained almost empty. He only jotted down a few words, perhaps words that were keys to his story, foreign-sounding place names. And when, after his first stroke, I asked him to describe at least those weeks in the spring of 1945 more precisely, he wearily dismissed the request, and said in a sonorous voice that seemed to ring out from the hollow of his deafness, What's the point? Haven't I already told you? You're the writer. Then he scratched himself under his shirt, stared out of the window, and added in an undertone, I hope all this shit will be over soon. Our inaudibility to him made us mute among ourselves. My mother and I sat for days by his deathbed without saying a word. The room had been painted lime green to head height, and above the bed there hung a print of a painting by Edouard Manet, Country House in Rueil. I'd always liked the painting, not just because of its apparent weightlessness, almost musical execution and the summer light with which it was softly imbued, even though not a scrap of the sky can be seen. The ochre-coloured villa, surrounded by trees, shrubs and red flowers, with its pillared portal, also bears a passing resemblance to the manor house of the farm in northern Germany, where my father did his milking apprenticeship in the early 1940s. It was there that my parents first met, 
and in my childhood I spent a few happy holiday weeks in the area. Relatives still lived on the nearby canal. A manor house of the soul, on which the evening sun now fell. The plastic frame creaked in the last of the warmth, and my mother, who wasn't leaning back in her chair, and whose handbag was hanging in the crook of her arm, as if she were just paying death a quick visit, set a water bottle down in the shade. Immaculate as always, having used far too much hairspray, she wore suede pumps and the midnight blue pinstripe suit that she had made herself. When she sighed quietly, I could smell a faint whiff of alcohol. In the eighteen years that I had spent living with my parents, and later too during my rare visits at Christmas or on birthdays, I had hardly seen a gesture of tenderness pass between the two of them, no touch or embrace, and not so much as a passing kiss. Instead,